There was a song that we almost sang, and yet we did not. Some of you might have been a little disappointed. And the last song that we sang, did you catch that tune that they started with? It was a wonderful introduction because they took an old song, a familiar song, used the music of that to get us ready for this other song. But it still felt a little like a bait and switch to me. Did you recognize the song? Be still, my soul. I love that song. There's a wonderful story behind that song. That song, the music to that song, um, has its own story, but it's, 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 it, it, well, it's actually here in the Hawkinson area. It's probably big. It's, the music to the song is Finlandia. And it was a song, it was a, it was a nationalist song that was sung in, um, oh, how do I want to say, um, in, uh, among a people standing against Nazi invader oppressors during World War II. That that's how they reminded themselves of who they really were and their identity and they would not be assimilated with this new culture that was pressed upon them. A new world view and one of the lines out of that song, uh, I'll just remind us of the, the second verse. Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious will be bright at last. What's now uncertain will become clear. Be still, my soul, the winds and waves still know the voice of him who ruled them while he was below. In the midst of the uncertainties and, and shifting circumstances and unknowns and, and risks and dangers of life, we can trust him whose voice still rules them. As he, as he did when he was below on earth with us, with his disciples. Our text this morning is Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is a psalm with, it's a wisdom psalm, but it's a psalm that balances tensions. It's a, it's a psalm that speaks of us and our work and how will we build. And yet it's a psalm that reminds us that it is God who builds. It's a psalm out of which probably one of the better known quotes out of the faith mission movement comes from. There was a man named William Carey. And William Carey, early in the faith mission movement, William Carey was being led by the Lord, pressed by the Lord to go to India with the gospel. And he went to his church leaders, and his church leaders, having a very sound and solid view of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control and God will do what God will do, they gave him this response, sit down, young man. If God intends to save those heathen, he will do it without your help or mine, they said. Well, I think William Carey understood that they were missing something. He did go on to, to East Asia and into, into India. And he gave us a quote that, that, that resonates still today. And he said, yes, in view and understanding the sovereignty of God, he said this, pray 
as if everything depends upon God. And he said, work as if everything depends upon you. Now, I'm I'm hesitant to meddle much with such an esteemed and well-known missionary quote. But I want us to consider that one a little bit. We might phrase it slightly differently today as we seek to understand what does Psalm 127 have to say to us today? The, the balance between what we do and what God must do. The, the difference between flourishing or futility. And the difference between flourishing or futility is not the level of commitment and work. Let's get into Psalm 127. The first verse. Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain, for nothing, in futility. A little Ecclesiastes thrown in here. This is a, a song of ascents, and it's, it's attributed to Solomon, or at least the time of Solomon. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, in Solomon's time, in Solomon's era, what would be the house, what would be the city? The house would not be a three-bedroom rambler on some nice, quiet cul-de-sac. The house would be the house, the house of God, the house that Solomon, as the son of David, was given the privilege to build. All had been gathered and made ready, and yet Solomon is to build the house. And Solomon builds a house, a temple to the Lord, there on Mount Zion, above Jerusalem. And they labored steadily, with skill and understanding, and the best craftsmen and the best materials, and yet unless the Lord builds the house, it will not stand. And that has to do with more than simply the structural engineering. That house would not remain as a dwelling place of God. By His Shekinah glory, by His presence, there would come the time when the presence of God would depart Unless the Lord watches over the city. What is the city? As a song of ascents, as pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for one of the three annual feasts, and they sing these songs. As they come up the hill, approaching the city, a walled city, a fortress city, a strong city such that uh, nations, when they invaded, would not even try to take Jerusalem until they had conquered every other strong and fortress-walled city in the surrounding area. Jerusalem was secure. It was built strong. It was formidable. And yet, they could not trust in those walls. They could not trust in chariots nor horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. There was a time in Solomon's own life where he multiplied chariots, where he multiplied horses, and it seems in these things he put his trust. There was a time when, when, when David counted his soldiers, counted his warriors. Did he have enough army to withstand the potential international threats around him when David should have known better than anyone? That in the promise of God, if I trust him, and if I make first, my first priority to walk with him in his ways, he said that my enemies will flee before me and one shepherd boy could take on a giant and the whole Philistine army would flee. David knew that. 
but we can forget what we know as we rely on ourselves. Solomon knew not to multiply chariots and horses, and yet along the way he did. In fact, Solomon is known for one of the innovations of city security, the three-chambered gate. The fortress cities were stronger than ever because of Solomon's innovation, and yet was he perhaps relying upon that instead of on the Lord our God? You see, Israel should know better than anybody that the safety of a city is not in its walls. The, the outcome of the city is from the Lord. Have you ever heard of a place called Jericho? That was the first entrance into the land. And all they did was march around the outside. And God brought the wall down. In fact, the very walls that were, were impossible for them to pass because of the way they were constructed with a, 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 a steep, um, um, covered over paved slope, so to speak, that you couldn't even gain a foothold to climb up. They, they couldn't strategize a way. How will we get in the city? And yet God brought those walls down in such a way that the bricks tumbling down became the steps by which they climbed up and walked right into the city. Israel knows better than anybody that God is bigger than walls. The strength is not in the walls. The strength is not in the watchman. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And the, over, the overarching principle here is God's covenant faithfulness secures us in present uncertainties. It is not by our own strength, it is not by our own means that we will present, prevent disaster, that we will keep ourselves safe. God's covenant faithfulness then and now secures us in present uncertainties. So, so Charles Spurgeon says that Psalm 127 is the, is the source of the maxim, Cromwell's maxim, that trust God and keep your powder dry. That's a, a thus and, isn't it? We will trust God, but we have a responsibility. We will keep our powder dry. And yet... Spurgeon goes on to say, but this psalm gives a slightly different sense than Cromwell, that the psalm seems to suggest that if we do not trust the Lord, there will not be enough powder. No amount of powder, gunpowder, is going to be enough if the Lord himself is not our guide, the one who keeps us ultimately. There's an implied promise in the psalm. That God will, God will do this. God will build the house as we trust him. God will keep the city. He himself will be our watchman. We could apply that to the building project that we're facing as a church. Unless the Lord builds the house. There's an impossibility to this. This is bigger than us. This is more than we could do. Unless the Lord does this, unless the Lord provides, we can't do it. Our efforts will be for nothing. And yet, it's, we're clear. We're, we're, we're clear on how big this is. We're clear that we ourselves don't have all the means to complete it. We feel something like the people gathered around Nehemiah or those who come back um, and Haggai is encouraging to rebuild the temple. What can we do with what we've got for what is needed? And yet, look what God does. 
That's sort of how we, we understand it now. But God has said, I will, I will build. The, there's, there's an impossibility with us, but nothing is impossible with God. And there's a fruitfulness that it will not be for nothing. You know, a church can be wealthy, and a church can build a wonder facility, and yet there's no spiritual fruitfulness happening there. That can also be the case. And that, to me, is a graver danger because it's harder to see. Accounting is easy to read. What's it going to cost? Well, then you find out, but what's it going to cost? And that changes, and there's this thing called inflation, and that's disturbing to us. But still, we've got a number. And then we've got another number. Well, how much do we have? And you can see how those line up. That's the easy part. The measuring of the spiritual fruit, that's a whole nother thing, isn't it? We'll finish a building, maybe. God will finish a building. And yet, what will happen there? That's an ongoing urgency. Will there, will God continue to be building? You know, it can take but one generation for a church to lose its light. Jesus warned those churches in Revelation of that. It can be one generation in a church loses life. And typically it takes two. The, the, uh, f- the, uh, the, there's the original generation. The next generation becomes a little careless. They don't quite understand and see and invest in the value with their life and labors in what God has built. They get a little careless with it. And so... They're not able to hand on to the next generation after them what this is really all about at all. But it can take just one. We dare not take for granted ever the spiritual fruit. God, would you build through us. God, would you be doing your work as you build in this temple, your body, this church. Everything that's on our full list for the fall, it could be wonderfully fruitful. It could be for nothing. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. At the same time, we can think about the what-ifs of life. There's a whole lot that happens in life that is beyond our control. Have you experienced that? There's a whole lot in life that is outside of our control that we can't control. it, And yet Americans are very good at, at, at seeking preservation, of reducing risk. We are very good at our expectation of how we can protect ourselves from any harm, whether it's from insurance, whether it's from medical technology and insights and procedures, whether it's from our government that will make new rules to keep us safe. That was actually a laugh line. We didn't realize it. And that's the whole point. We expect our government can keep us safe. Really? Really? No. And we've discovered that along the line, along the way. We've had wonderful experiments in that. There is a role for government that God has ordained and established. Don't get me wrong. I'm not turning into an anarchist here, not at all. I'm afraid that the culture around me will, but that is not at all my point. But it's a wonderful example, perhaps, of the responsibility that we bear, and yet the outcome is of the Lord. That's what the psalm is expressing here. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We're we're often in the midst of those uncertainties, those what-ifs in life. We would ask ourselves, well, where is God in the midst of that? God does not prevent any evil. God does not prevent any harm from befalling. Why is it that we would think then that we ourselves can? God does not prevent, but God has changed everything. People ask me in the midst of some, some terrible thing that has happened in their own life, or they've seen on a more tragic scale, for instance, the fires in Maui, where was God when this happened? And I would say, in the midst of the worst of it, in trouble or sorrow, in loss and in death, don't ask where was God, remind yourself there went God. God, in the person of his Son, came into the very worst of it for us. The very worst of which the world and the Roman Empire could dig up in its day. That's what he willingly stepped into. Not only at the end, but through his life, the Son of Man, the glory of God translated into humanity, had nowhere to lay his head. And in the end, they shamed him, they ridiculed him, they mocked him, they rejected him, they spat on him. The ultimate shame of the worst form of execution that humanity in that day could come up with. He was esteemed of being a waste of breath. And it would be better for all of us if he wasn't here. That was the political judgment of the day. And they crucified him. He laid down his life. God sent him. It wasn't a matter of where is God. It was a matter of there went God into the very worst of it for us to change everything. And the only answer for it is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He did that for us to transform death into a departure where now that grievous separation of those who love one another is only a temporary thing in Christ for to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And Paul himself would say, even with his love for the church, he would say to depart and be with Christ. That would be better. I'm probably going to have to hang around a little while longer for you folk, but, but to depart and be with Christ, to be in his presence, and in his presence is the fullness of joy. Look what God has done, even with death itself. And Jesus does that. Jesus comes in to this brokenness for us. There went God. He did that to keep the city. He did that to build a house. He did that to keep his eternal city as an eternal dwelling place for you. He did that so that he might build up from all people a temple, a holy dwelling place for himself, as Ephesians 2 describes, that he would form us into his temple, his dwelling place, his church, the body of Christ. That's what God is building That's what God is keeping. I was first introduced to this verse back in, oh golly, what was it, 1987? I think it was 1987. Our first child was just seven months old, and he he lunged off of a 
changing table onto a hard tile on concrete slab floor. Seven-month-olds can sometimes lunge faster than their mamas can catch them. At first, it seemed like he was going to be okay. He was acting fairly normal. Julie had medical training. She knew what neurological indicators to look for, and there was none of that. So, clearly, it hurt, but it seems like he's going to be okay. A little bit later, we noticed there was a little bit of something weird, some kind of fluid buildup under his scalp on the side of his head. We weren't, so we realized, oh, we need to get him in the emergency room. We need to get this checked. We don't know enough here. And so we took him in, and uh, the doctor in the emergency room was not really concerned at all. Basically, he told us babies are made of rubber. They, they bounce back where somebody a little older would, would have, would, this could be a much more serious injury, but babies, God has just protected them. They're, he's, he's probably going to be fine, but let me just call a pediatrician down to take a look. And so brought a pediatrician down, and uh, she says, you know, probably okay, but there's actually an artery that runs through the skull there where you're now noticing this fluid is probably bleeding, and I'd just like to make sure, I'd like to do an x-ray, make sure that, 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 that there's not something going on with that artery that could be a bigger problem problem. And so they do the x-rays, and it does show that actually the bleeding seems to be coming from, the, there's a skull fracture right where that little artery or vein, whichever it was, runs through the skull itself there. So she said, you know, it's still probably nothing to worry about. It'll probably heal just fine on its own, but we'd like to keep him overnight for observation just in case. And we have this brand new pediatric neurosurgeon He'd only, been in the hosp- he'd only been in the Air Force a couple of weeks. He was brand new to this tra- large training hospital on a training base, so that's where they sent him. And he was brand new. He's a pediatric neurosurgeon, so he's kind of like the new toy for the pediatricians. They're all waiting for a chance when they'll get to call and consult with this guy because he's, this, is, this is pretty big stuff. And so she says, I want to give him a call and just ask him if there's anything else I should do or check for. So she gives him a call. And unbeknownst to us, he immediately orders the operating room prepped for surgery. He comes in immediately. He'd been at some party or someplace because he comes in. He's all dressed up. And um, yet he's interrupted his, his evening. And the next thing Julie and I know, we've been moving along from no problem to maybe to just we're going to watch this to now we're sitting in a room near midnight and are explaining to us that we're going to pray over our little boy and They're going to roll him away into surgery, and we don't know if we're going to see him again or not. And an elder and his wife from our church came and sat with us, and they gave us this verse. It reminded us probably out of his own experience, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Parents, Have you ever wondered what if? Have you ever thought if only we had? Have you imagined all the ways that you could have done something different? And if you had, and that's not just for parents, is it? That's for all of us in all kinds of circumstances. But if I had, or if I'd noticed, or if I'd thought of, or maybe God was telling me, but I just wasn't listening, and some harm could have been avoided. And yet, is not God able? Is not God able? 
Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake for nothing. And I don't always know the why. But I know where God has gone. I know where the Son was sent. And whatever is happening in the midst of this brokenness of humanity, He has gone before me. And as we sang, He will hold me fast. He will build, he will keep. The principle, the principle is that we trust the Lord more than we trust ourselves. We have responsibility to build and safeguard, but success and security will come from the Lord. They don't, they, God works through our effort, and yet the sum of it is not a result of our effort. That's the balance that verse 2 really brings out. And I know my time's almost gone, and I've only gotten to verse 2. So let's do this. The second principle is that success and security are in the Lord. Those are applied now to personal circumstances that we take our responsible, responsibility seriously but we dare not take ourselves too seriously. It is not ultimately up to me and my means and my ability and what I do. Verse 2, It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Or, as the Net Bible and the New American Standards say, he gives to their beloved in their sleep. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But in the, well, in the midst of sleep, for instance, Jesus picks up on this in Mark twenty-six, Mark four, verse twenty-six. He, he he tells the story of a farmer plants his field of wheat, and yet even while he sleeps, the ground produces all by itself. First, the blade of wheat pops up, and then there's a then there's the head of of grain that appears, and then there's the fullness of the grain that grows within that head. And that keeps happening even while the farmer's in bed. The farmer doesn't do that. The farmer doesn't make that happen. Romans 9, 16, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, effort, but on God who has mercy. Israel experienced that in the manna that they woke up to every morning. God gives to his beloved even in their sleep. And so Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard, protect your hearts. Able to trust him for it, rather than striving on your own. You see, the key to is, it is, in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. That anxious toil phrase gives us the context for the first line. This is not a reason to sleep in and only go to the second service. Sign up for one of those BP Academy classes in the first service, or the nursery, or teaching, helping in Sunday school, or the pre something. You've got something to do in the morning, and there's something that God will use in your effort. This is not an, ex ex an excuse then to, to be lazy, to sleep in, to not work hard, but it balances human responsibility with resting in our God. The Sabbath day is an example of that. A whole day of farming or selling lost. Think of it. You're a farmer. There's work to do. There's work to do from sun up to sundown every day, even on the seventh day. And yet, I'm going to trust God with this. 
I might have some extra pickup to do on, 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 on the next day because of it. But the, the Israelite of faith is going to trust God on that seventh day, and they're going to rest. There are, there are more sales to be made. There are more people who will buy. And I can sell um, that, that, that one-seventh more if I also open shop on, on, the, on, the, on that day. But the Lord told his people to rest. And so there is an example for us that we have a responsibility to farm or to trade, and yet that is mitigated by our rest in the Lord himself and trusting him for outcomes. We can apply that to time you will invest. You'll, you'll invest time trusting Lord, the Lord to bear his fruit. It'll... it'll You'll sacrifice other time and other exertions and maybe even work hours and maybe double overtime pay because you're going to be in worship on Sunday. Or you're going to, you're going to lay off labor because you need to be part of this small group on that evening. Or you need to be part of a D group. When there are clients you could meet, there is money to be made. There is fruit to be picked off the trees out there and yet... There's something else that matters most in terms of flourishing in your relationship with the Lord and you're willing to devote that time to him. Jesus applies that reality to his disciples, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you and that's how you'll bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It may be that when the Lord gives to his beloved even in their sleep, what he's talking about there is the conception of children. It's an interesting psalm. It starts with the house and the city, and, then again, and clearly we're talking about not yet family. We're talking about temple. We're talking about the security of the nation as a whole, and now it moves into the individual family and the security of the family. And the family to survive in ancient Israel needed children. Without children, the family would not continue. That was a big part of things. And, and if you're a farmer as well, you need children for the farm. You need children to look after you in your old age. Children were God's social security program in Israel. Not a bad one at all. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. It's his blessing. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have children, you're being blessed, you're being rewarded for something. If you don't have children, you're not being blessed. God is withholding, and you are, you are being punished or instead of rewarding because of something. That's our faulty logic. This is a, a wisdom principle that children are a blessing, and when you know the pain of the loss of a child or not having children, as, by the way, is is a pain expressed by some of those that we look to for encouragement of faith in the Scriptures. If that's a pain that you've endured, you stand with Abraham and Sarah, you, where Abraham himself cries out to God, God, you promised me, and yet I don't even have a son. A servant born in my house is going to inherit what I have. And Do the promises go to him? Where are you, God? Rachel, Hannah, even Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the list could go on. Their hurt and yours affirms that, yeah, children are a blessing. The exception to it in our experience proves the rule just like the death of a loved one proves that death is indeed our enemy. It's a terrible thing that sin has done. 
and yet God has redeemed us from it. Well, with these children, like arrows in the hand of a warrior or the children's of one, children of one's youth, there's something to be learned there about intentionality of launching children. Launch those children that they will go further than we can go. We don't merely teach children what they should do because the context in which they do is going to be different from ours. We're going to launch them further into the battle than we ourselves can run. We're going to be tired. And they need to know the principles. They need to know what it is to know God. And out of knowing Him and walking with Him, they will be able to live His life with Him in the midst of whatever changes in the context that we're not able to fully anticipate. There's an intentionality. There's a responsibility there. And yet, the Lord must keep the house. There's a third person plural there. My ESV Bible reads, He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his adversaries in the gate. It seems to be thinking the father is not going to be put to shame because he's a man with many children. I don't think that's it. I think it's the Social Security program. I think when the man is old enough, when mom and dad are old enough that they could be easily taken advantage of, not unlike the ID theft and phone scammers of today, when they could easily be taken advantage of, they need their children to be the ones to represent their interest in the gate of the city before others. There's something there. Seniors should not be alone. There's something there that we need to practice in our own families. There's something there that we need to practice together as a church family. We need to look out for one another. One of the things I love about this church is that sense of family across generation. And I don't just mean within your own multi-generational families. That across generations, this church is learning what it is to function together as a family and to care for one another and to, and to build one another up together by that which each joint supplies with each part doing its part. Kids get to help and, and seniors add wisdom and we all pull in this together and look out for one another. A building program, building a house, building an education building, is an example of the kind of sacrifice that is required to prepare a place for the next generation, even as the generations that preceded us prepared a place for us to learn and to grow and to be church family together in. And it's an example that points us to the rest of the work, the continuing of the work, the building of God's house, God's temple, by that which every joint continues to supply, by what happens within these buildings, by what happens in the new buildings into those next generations as we prepare children, as we give ourselves for the sake of others and how they will walk with knowing him in the next generation. We pray because everything depends upon God. And so we will work Because God will do his working through each one of us together. You can't do it on your own. 
verse 1. So stop living like you're on your own, verse 2, and look to join in what God is doing for the sake of the generation that comes behind us. Let's pray. Father, as we consider a schedule of opportunities before us in the fall, Lord, guard us from the sense of these are activities to enjoy, things to fit into our schedule. Lord, give us among these things priorities that we've established as a church. Lord, give us among these things a place where each one of us can be growing. Growing in what we are receiving to strengthen our own faith. And Father, also growing in ways that we can give ourselves to another for their spiritual growth, for their edification. Father, we intend to be part of this house, this temple that you build. We want, Father, the privilege of being used in your building. So, Father, we ask you to do it. We ask you to build. We ask you to preserve, to protect, and to keep. And, Father, we pray, would you use us in what you are doing for your glory, even into the next generation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.